Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California. This is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael. And today we are most excited to talk to our long-term friend, David Oman, about his new book, Ghosts of Cielo Drive, The Afterlife of Sharon Tate and the Spirits of the Omen House. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hi, everyone. Um, first of all, thanks, everybody, for supporting our show. We just passed 450 subscribers, and we're growing every day, and our watch minutes are increasing on YouTube every day. So so thank you guys so much for the support, and we've gotten some fabulous comments lately from fans, and, and it really makes us makes our hearts warm to know that you guys are enjoying our show and that we're looking forward to uh, continuing this as we go forward in the foreseeable future. Um, just to let you guys know what's coming up, at the end of December on uh, the 31st, I believe, is our cosmic weather for January. It will be the last cosmic weather that we are doing because we are switching our format starting at the end of January. It will become Spell It Out. And it will still have some astrology, but it's going to be Krista also. She will broaden the show a little bit, get into a couple of different subject matters, um, maybe a rant or two. So it um, should be a lot of fun, and, and we're, we're going to have a really good time with it. So just look forward to that. We have some fabulous guests coming up in January as well. Um, on the 7th, we have the um, very respected occultist, Lon Milo Duquette. He's going to be talking about his book and a whole bunch of other things that we have on the go. So that's really exciting. Um, and then we have uh, Lama Kathy back. Um, and we'll be discussing some Buddhist thought and, and how it relates to many of the things going on hopefully today. Um, and then we are finishing the month of January with Dr. George Swimmer, Krista's dad, who will be back. And he's going to be talking about the shamanic training that he received when he was younger. So all kinds of cool things coming up. Uh, get all the information on our website, sixcentsociety.com, S-I-X-T-H. Uh, all spelled out, sixcentsociety.com. Um, here we are on YouTube, so you're obviously watching us here, but if you want to listen to the show as a podcast, you know, we're on Spotify and iTunes and Google Play and all that good stuff. So so we put it up, you know, shortly after the show airs as a podcast, so you can listen to us that way as well. Uh, please subscribe, comment. Um, we'll have the live chat on if you guys have questions for David. Um, just, you know, hit the chat and we will ask him and get his response. So with that... I'm going to kick it back to Krista and David, and have a great show, guys. Great. Thanks, Michael. Welcome, David. Welcome. Thank you for having me on, Krista, and thank you for the wonderful intro, Michael. So you're welcome. I'm going to put up, hold up your book so people on YouTube can see the book here I have in my hand. And I actually just finished reading it about a week ago. And the first thing I wanted to say was it was really interesting, and I like the mix of the... Um, investigative information, your personal stories, which made it readable, you know, and really, you really got a, a really, even though I know you, I learned a lot of things about you, actually, that I didn't know that I thought was really fascinating. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, uh, I actually, as I was just talking to a friend of mine, I think you remember Dora Kessler um, today, I said, you know, I really bared my soul in this book. And I said, I really decided that if I was going to make a book about my story, that it had to be completely comprehensive about my history and the connections that I personally had back, you know, 50 years ago to the Sharon Tate, you know, to, the, to Sharon Tate and to the um, Manson family, since a lot of people don't know anything that, about my history and the fact that, you know, the Manson girls were in the backseat of my mother's car when I was a kid. That was so creepy. I, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. And no, I don't, I just don't talk about that stuff much except for friends that I've known for, you know, over 30 years. And then they know the story. But it was like to basically reveal that to the audience and to the public and to say, yeah, 
it's not just the fact that I live here now. It goes back in past in, in my past of the strange, I don't want to say coincidences, but the connections that I've had back to the um, back to Sharon Tate and the Manson clan, so to speak. That people are like, no, no, no. It's like, yeah, it's quite true and real. I had a strange interconnectivity to those people in a weird way, and. It, it, to this day, it literally makes me go, it kind of makes sense in a way that I live here with all this stuff going on. And, you know, then in high school, coming up here to see the places we all did to go, oh, let's go to the state house. And yet I could never find the house only when I was a, after I was a kid because somebody used to drive me up here. Mm-hmm. And at, a couple years after high school and they all, my friends all dispersed. I tried to find this place, and for the life of me, I couldn't find this private driveway. And as I now live here so many years, it's like, how could I miss it? There's only three driveways till Angelo's and Angelo View, where it dead ends. So, what was the confusion? Wasn't meant to be until later, I think. You know, I mean, it does seem like you have, like, I would call it a specific destiny because of all of the ways it all sort of lined up without you really knowing it, which I feel like destiny does sometimes that the pieces are lining up and later on you can kind of see how they lined up. And so, um, for instance, how you bought the property um, itself, how you came to that was sort of destined, it seems like. Yeah, I, I agree with you because a lot of people believe or think that, oh, you were interested in Sharon Tate and you were obsessed with Sharon. It's like, no, not in the slightest. I was never a devotee or a fan. And I'm not saying this in regards to like putting down people who are fans of mm-hmm. Sharon. I'm just saying that I honestly wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I Obviously, I knew of the murders and stuff as a kid, but it wasn't like I was enthralled with the whole murders and what took place in an, in an out, in a more overt fashion. I knew of them. It was a point in history, but... That's all it was. So the only reason that I try to explain to people is why I live here is completely a financial issue. My dad found a lot. It was a foreclosure. It was $40,000. And literally, that's the only real reason why it is I live here. It wasn't like I found this piece of real estate near Sharon Tate's house. Oh, I've got to buy it, and I've got to build my house there. I need to be close to where she was. It's not like that at all. Um but yeah, I, I, I didn't know that about you too. The other thing I wanted to mention before we get into sort of the details of your stories yeah. is, is your dedication to the Tongva people and also your history of the land was really interesting. I knew some of it, but not, you know, the details of the canyons. And um, so I felt that was really nice. I, 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 As a reader, I like to look at people's dedications a lot because <laughs> it's, it's interesting sometimes what people put in them. And so I, I particularly like that. Yeah, no, I felt that they were the most, first of all, there's so little information in the public about them. And that's not to say that there aren't people that know about the Tongva, but they're obscure. And when I started delving into the history, it blew my mind because, let's face it, when, stop right there. When you and Michael first came here to the house some 17 years ago when I moved in, you two were one of the first people that was were gifted people that came here that said, I feel Native American energies here. And I'm like, we're in the middle of Beverly Hills, in the middle of Los Angeles. What, I kept thinking, oh, yeah, I can see it. And I'm thinking again, Native Americans with the headdress and the teepees and the, the whole nine yards. And you guys kept saying, no, we feel Native American presence here. And I remember you and I and Michael walked all the way down to the end of the driveway where the construction was going on with the state property. And you guys said, yeah definitely lots of Native American energies in this area, and I'm going, no, really? And to then find out a few years later that through happenstance, again, through reading the Benedict Canyon um, annual magazine that they, this association would put out, I found a page that said, noted the, the incident that took place maybe 1842, and the Native Americans and the early Californians that were here. And then I went to the spot and I found a boulder on the site of Chevy Chase Drive in Benedict Canyon where the um, there's a bronze placard on it and it says, on this spot in 1925, 
when ground was first broken for the Beverly Hills First Women's Club, the remains of three Native Americans from a battle between the early Californians and the Native Americans took place. And I was like, Criminy's sake, everything that Kristen Michael had said was spot on accurate. And then doing further research for the book, it was like the whole county of Los Angeles was basically that was their territory. And right. it and then I found out about the other different um tribes or nations as they prefer to be called, that occupied different parts of LA, but closer to the coast. And then up towards Santa Barbara, and I was like, wow, this totally, how should I say, was an eye-opener, understanding what was here long before the, the, the Spaniards and the Mexicans and, the, and later on the Americans occupied the space that for some 10,000 years, the Native American tribe was up here in this part, settled and living. I, I just, it just took me by surprise and blew me away. And wasn't, I, I don't remember the details, but I think you mentioned that that area or maybe even where your land is, is was sacred because of where how the canyons met. There were, wasn't there water at early on and they saw, the Indians saw that as a sacred area, sacred site? Well, yeah, what, I, what you're referring to is, is that I found out that there were three rivers there was, that ran through the three different canyons. So there was Franklin Canyon, Coldwater Canyon, and Benedict Canyon. And they were all tributaries that all led down to what was a large swamp and marsh area, which was right now where the Beverly Hills Hotel sit. And that was sacred land because they considered the, I think the three sisters is what the Native Americans used to call them. The three sisters referring to the three, the three rivers that deposited there at the bottom of the confluence of Sunset Boulevard and Benedict Canyon, where they all met, mm -hmm. and that was sacred land to them. And when the when they finally when it was settled and the Beverly Hills Hotel was built, the story came back that the Native Americans, that the Tonga tribe shaman, had cursed that whole area when it was when they were disposed or disposed of the area. And it's funny because the Beverly Hills Hotel has its own ghost stories that are historically noted there that people have experienced in mm. that location. Mm. So yeah, that's what they were, it was just interesting as, as all hell that, you know, this is where I live and this is all part of the true history of this area. Yeah, that, that was amazing. I really enjoyed that part. So um, well, I'm glad I wanted to hear that, honestly. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it, well, you know, it's always good to get sort of uh, the history of places in general. And it's one of the things I actually like about certain paranormal shows is the history I learn. And, um, you know, it can start off looking really kind of like nothing's going on. And then they start digging and they find these old photos. And it's really fascinating. You know, it just shows we have so much rich history that we can keep digging up forever in this country and probably everywhere, of course. Well, so it's kind of like, I don't know what it is about the American psyche, but it's almost like those that came before us, we don't pay attention to, and we accept what we know from what we know from our own historical perspective. But before that, it's kind of like, mm, who knows? And as you said, I personally fall under the same line as you. Is I like to know the historical situation and statement of any location because it allows you to understand the foundation upon which everything else is built. And it honestly answers a lot of questions that people have, like, why this? Why that? Why is this going on? It's like, because you're not the first to inhabit the land. And therefore, others that were there previously before you, their memories and their experiences have been, are, are still there. Whether you like it or not, and you don't, or whether you know it or not, it'll find its way to the surface as it has in my home and open me up to understand that you're not the first ones to walk the earth. You're not the first first ones to inhabit these lands. Remember that and respectfully honor and, and remember them and cherish them. Because if you don't, you're going to have more problems in, in coming down the line, so to speak, as I have found that other people that don't have that respect for them get walloped by energy that is like on you insult us and insulted our memory. How dare you? 
Very true. I really like that. Um, so going into the book a little bit, you definitely have a lot of rich information about the different people from famous people to ordinary people that have come to investigate. And I thought maybe we could start talking about your first ghost investigation, which was on August 9, 2004. A little bit about that. Well, sure. That was um, that was after two years I was living here. And you guys were here before that. But I never really went into digging deep into the paranormal side of things until... I had enough. I had my experience of seeing Jay Steven a month earlier, in the middle of July, and it was like, okay, I finally saw my first apparition after so many years of my life of saying, I want to see a ghost. I want to see a real life ghost. Well, I want to see a real ghost, not live or dead, but I want to see one. And when that happened, I said, okay, I, I now realize that this place is so unique in so many dynamic ways that. The opportunity for me to have this experience with a spirit after after living my life to that point saying, I now got to dig a little deeper. I've done as much as I can do, but I'm limited because I'm not a, uh, and I still am not. I wasn't, and I still am not a parapsychologist. I'm not, um, I'm not versed, and I wasn't, I was pretty green behind the ears when it came to um, the paranormal. Except for what I read as a kid in the Hans Holzer and other books back in the day, I didn't feel qualified to be able to do it myself. So I reached out to um, a guy named Rob Wodowski, and he luckily lived in the valley close enough by. And I said, look, blah, 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 this is where I live. I have these strange occurrences happening. I want to see about having an investigation here. And he, we had talked for a couple of months. He said, let's do one. I'm going to be free around the 1st of August. And he says, oh, my God, because that's around the anniversary of the murders. I said, hey, great. I said, do you think you'll, let's set it up for that day since it's not too far off in the distance. And um, we can do it on that night. We'll see what we come up with. And I said, great, let's go. And that was the first time that I had ever met him. He came here with his wife, Anne, and um, brought a friend of theirs, Alma Carey who's a psychic, and Rob's a paranormal investigator, and so is his aunt, so is his wife, Pam, and they invited their friend Alma to do me a favor. Don't tell her anything about where I live, about the history of what took place down the street. Keep her in the dark. I said, there's only one way, from, in my experiences, because I was a private investigator, I said to flesh something out, and I to flesh it out, not to flesh it out, but to flesh out the story, is to let somebody not know anything and let them come in totally blind let this unfold naturally speaking so that if she's picking up something we can document it and we can have it on tape and we can use it for reference but I want to keep her completely blind of where she was and she came in the house as Rob and I were going outside I introduced myself I said here have a seat in the dining room we'll be right back Rob and I went outside and we came back five minutes later and Alma says to me, she goes, oh, I saw your girlfriend. And I was like, in my mind, it's like, what the hell is she talking about? My girlfriend's not here. And I said, and then the thoughts were, thought in my head says, that's great, but don't say that. Meaning don't tip your hand to letting her know that something's afoot. Play along with it, which is the smartest thing to do. That way you can't be accused of leading the, the, that person on mm. or giving them information beforehand so that you get an organic response based upon what they had experienced, not what I'm referring to as my point of view and painting her, her reference point. I kept it totally clean. So I said, really, I said, what does she look like? I think I said, said she's not here right now, but, but I said, thinking that possibly she saw somebody else here that was with the crew with Rob, because I didn't have anybody here um, until later on at the time visiting that was part of my team or my friends my second cousin and my friend jim vines came by but i said to her i said describe me she goes oh she was about five foot four blonde hair it was pulled back it, was, it would have been a little longer than shoulder length had it been undone but she um came from the den walked around the bar and then walked turned and looked at me and acted nonchalant towards me just like you know she's going about her business 
She said she was wearing a white sundress, mid-thigh level. She had thighs, no, no stockings or anything, but she had very shapely thigh legs. And she said she looked at her and acted as if she was, was just, as if she owned the place. And she walked down the staircase and disappeared and went down. And she goes, didn't think anything of it. And I said, um, there's nobody here that fits that description. My girlfriend happens to be an abject anti-paranormal enthusiast. Um, she's also five foot eleven, six foot. She has dark chestnut brown hair, long straight mid back length. I said, and she's nowhere near here. And then Alma said, Oh my God. I said, but you described was Sharon Tate. And it was like, oh my God. And wow. what's also interesting is is when Alma when I first started talking to Alma, she was very nice and sweet and very personable. Within about 20 minutes of her being here, her demeanor turned absolutely counter to that. And what I mean is she became a little bit more, I don't want to say aggravated, but um, like, like almost like on pins and needles. She was like, just like cranky all of a sudden. I'm like going, whoa, this person's personality is just taking a sideways turn. What's going on? And I kept thinking to myself, there's something not right about this. And then I said to Rob, I said, hey, Rob, you know this woman, Alma, better than I do. I said, how come I get the sense that when when I met her when she walked in, she was really pleasant, nice, and amiable, and, you know, very personable, etc. And now all of a sudden I'm starting to notice that she's a little bit bitchy and a little bit, like, like snappy. And I said, I'm not creating any kind of a dynamic, you know, um, in my commentary with her that would lead one to believe that there's, I'm pushing her buttons. It just was like, you'd say, well, how are you feeling? Well, no, like, like, this snappy. And I'm like, going, okay. And I said, hey, Rob, and he goes, no, that's not the way Alma usually is. She very seldom gets that. She, she goes, yes, everybody has the potential to be that way, but um, Alma's pretty level, even keeled. And this is definitely something that I can say that is not usually the way Alma is. And I was like, oh, whoa. I say, hey, Rob, is it possible that whatever's here energy-wise is ma manipulating Alma and pushing her buttons and giving her the aggravation and this kind of a, this kind of a snappy report? And he goes, oh, my God. He goes, maybe she's sensitive and she's getting it. I don't know what it is, he said, but I think you're on to something. Later on, in the, like an hour later, I said, Let's, I said, it's enough. I said, I can't stand it. She's, it's not going to be a... It's going to be an unpleasant evening if I have to deal with her and this attitude with whatever I say is positive. She's going to chomp, 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 chomp. And I said, we got to tell her. We got to tell her. I said, unfortunately, we have to tell her, but I can't work with her. It's not, it's uncomfortable. It's really unseasoning. And so he said, um, Alma, I said, you, do you know where you are? And she goes, where, where? She goes, no. I said, I'm at your house. I said, do you know where my house, what, what's nearby? And she goes, no. But it was like still like bitchy. And I said, well, let me let me bring you up to speed. We didn't tell you where my house was located because we want to keep you in the, in the dark. But as far as I can tell, there's something that's playing on your heartstrings and your mind and you're just turning inside out. And I don't know you, but you feel a little bit snappy and bitchy and aggravated. She goes, well, I am. I don't, I don't even know why. I wasn't like this. And I said, well, here's the story. And I told her that, and she was like, Oh my God, I understand now. It makes sense to me. And I'm like, what? She goes, I was getting pushed and pushed because I wasn't acknowledging them. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, I could feel these people like pushing at me inside out. It's like saying, what? Why aren't you, why aren't you paying attention to us? And she goes, I could feel things, but I couldn't make the connection of what I was picking up. And she says, because I didn't know anything, I internalized it. And as a result, it made me very, very uncomfortable and angry and upset and kind of snappy. And it's like, yeah. And she, after we told her, it was like that. She goes, oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Because now I understand what the hell is going on here. I'm getting pushed and tormented by those that feel I'm not acknowledging them. I'm not expressing a connection with them because I can feel them, but I don't want to assume things and I don't want to go there. And because I'm not on camera, I don't have to be. You're not asking about that. She goes, I'm not feeling like I have to give up anything before you ask. And it's like, so what? She goes, I'm like, it's like the pressure was building up in her 
to the mm. point where it exploded. And luckily, we stopped that type of dynamic. And she goes, ah, now it explains everything I'm feeling. She says, I'm feeling all these pains. She goes, I'm feeling huh. like my stomach, the back of my head is feeling like this. And she goes, I don't understand where it's coming from, but it hurts. And I'm like, holy moly, Helen, God green earth. So it's interesting because she could pick up things, but couldn't connect to the names. Mm. But the torment and the anguish and the anger was still, you know, broom, broom, how to say, boiling in her mm-hmm. as a result of her non-connection to them directly and acknowledging them like that. She said, I understand. It now completely makes sense. I feel much better that you have told me. And I now can, can feel a little bit more at, at ease. Right. Like, Amazing. And then when, when um, in his report, write-up, Rob's report, uh, he mentions how he thought uh, there was a male tied to the land for 100 years, and also he was not the only one to call the place a way station for spirits, which I thought was, you know, we've talked about that before, but that a lot of investigators seem to have that kind of feeling about your house. Right. Rob picked up on the Native American that, that was that that Lisa Williams later on told us, let's see, that was 2004. Lisa Williams came out in 2006 or seven after Ghost Hunters aired. And she said to me, she goes, I want to see your house. And I said, who is this? She goes, it's Lisa Williams. And I was like, oh, oh, it's in the TV show. Oh, I had Lisa Williams experience. I got it. And she said, I want to come up without any of my crew. I just want to come up by myself with my manager and see the house because I'm so curious. And she was the first one that nailed it on the head and went to the, to the earthen wall room and said, oh, do you know you have a Native American on horseback who apparently died here a couple hundred years ago when his horse was walking down the driveway, which was then a horse path, and the horse lost its footing and tumbled down the, the uh, embankment or the mountain, the hillside, with the rider on top. As a result, horse and rider both broke their necks and died and their bodies were left 60 feet down the side of the side of the hill, and they basically decomposed, rotted, and the remains were covered through the years by the mudslides that are here, and all you know, all up and down the mountain, which I personally have seen 14 years ago when the hillside gave way and we had to bulldoze out the driveway. Wow. And she said, "Well, he's here, and he wants to let me know, let you know that he's here. That, that you understand this." And when it connected overlay to what Rob had said, it was like, oh, my God, Rob got it two or three years earlier. And, you know, to have different people that have no interaction whatsoever with one another from different points, because Rob didn't know Lisa Williams except mm-hmm. from TV. And Lisa Williams had no clue who Rob was. So it's not like these Rob told Lisa and Lisa now had some information to go by. They're totally separate and in the dark. Which to me was what I what I, I told you later on, or in the book. I kept that under my hat after Lisa Williams said that. Because at any time a psychic could come to the house and enter that room, I said, well, let's see what these people pick up. There's no reason to tip your hat. If it's organic and they pick it up, great. And that's basically what started happening. James Bond Clark came in with Larry King Live, and he goes in that room and he goes, oh, I feel a Native American presence in here. Oh, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> that was funny. Why did he, he, he was scared. <laughs> he didn't, he was uncomfortable. It was unnerving because he was like, he walked in there and was like, whoa, it was instantaneous. He felt like going, uh-oh, there's something here. And I said, what's that? He goes, and he walked deeper into the earth and water and right to the point where the earth is. And he looked and he goes, and his eyes got all big. He goes, there's a Native American here. And I, I, I no, I got to get out. And just hightailed it out like it was, really strong for him and he didn't like it um other people like jackie barrett of american psychic challenge had sat there for like 20 minutes talking to this native american and i'm like going oh yeah he and with jackie with a thick new york accent is talking and i'm going this is too funny i only wish to god i had it on tape because jackie is a character she's got that full new york accent she looks like goth the goth queen and it's like, <laughs> you, you see this image of this goth queen, and then she opens her mouth and starts talking with this accent, the New York accent. I'm like going, oh, my God, it's Brooklyn and, and, and God. How funny. And it was like, and she's, and she's so a matter of fact, like, oh, David, you know this and that. 
yeah, he's here. And I'm going, this is, this is golden. This is the kind of stuff you live for to watch on TV because it's the setup of here comes the goth queen. And she starts talking with the New York Times. <laughs> just like, oh, no, 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 no. It just strikes me as the first episode of the, the premiere episode of The Love Boat back in 76, <laughs> where Gabe Kaplan, Mr. Cotter, is after this, this gorgeous girl. And she only, she goes, yes. She just does like one word she says. And then he says, I want you to talk to me. I want you to talk to me. Do you please talk to me? I can't stand it. You just say one gosh, one word. I want to hear what you have to say. And then it's like she opens her mouth and it's like, well, God, it's so good to be able to talk to real with my real voice. Mama's always told me now to open my mouth and say two words because nobody wants to hear this voice out of this beautiful face. And oh my God, I'm so happy. I love you. You're just amazing. And he's like, going, and he's like, he's like, oh my God, hang me from the nearest yard arm. This is going to drive me. And he's like, I, I was in love with her. That maybe I should have gotten to know her because it's the whole thing is, what you perceive on the surface is not what's behind the canvas. That's true. That's really funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I, I would say, you know, the paranormal world does have its characters just like everybody, uh, some other fringe kind of groups, I would call it. So even though paranormal is popular on TV, I still consider it a fringe group. <laughs> I, I kind of, it, it, it is definitely, it is definitely a, a, a fringe interest of interest to fewer than than the whole population. Yes, it's becoming more and more um, a curiosity to the public, but let's be honest. For those of us like yourself and myself that have been, you know, thoroughly enthralled with the paranormal since we were kids, it's not like this is something new to us. This is something that's been a part of our lives, all of our lives. This is and the normal we, world you know, for us. <laughs> basically, yes. I mean, you know, and that's why people read my book and go, you're nuts. It's like, no, I just don't have the same same belief system that everybody else does as far as what happens, you know, the curiosity about death and stuff. And I've come to a different conclusion because I've always had spirits around me. When I was a kid, I always, you know, was intrigued and always felt the presence and always would hear things. And it was like, okay, don't take the, don't take her home. Let your friend take her home. And then I was like, no, 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 I dismissed it. Then I take her home and I end up crashing my car and it's like, oh God. I should have listened to the gosh darn spirits telling me not to take her home because they saw what was going to happen to me down the road in an hour. So, yeah, I think some of us have had a lesson or two of that, not listening to that voice. <laughs> and then learning to learning shut the up heart. and listen and, yeah. and make that thing. Oh, you're talking? Okay, I'm listening. Okay, got it. Good. Thank you. Thank you. I'll listen. I won't disavow your thoughts. And that's how it is. It's like the lessons we have to learn till we finally get it. like, they're not telling you this to hurt you. They're telling you this to protect you. And listen next time. You won't have this problem ever again if you listen. And that's sure. what I've learned is that, you know, we all have our sixth sense in our, since <laughs> this is the sixth sense society, might as well, you know, we all belong to the society of the sixth sense when we're a child. But as we grow up through society and through our parents and our peers, we're basically forced to put on blinders to do this. So whatever's going on on the periphery of our lives, we dismiss and don't we ignore is what I was told. And in my case, I never bought into the idea of putting the blinders on and conforming to what society's edicts or principles were. I just said, I, I, I can't deny what I hear and what I see around me that's on the periphery. I need to acknowledge that and keep that in my, in my, in my being. And never disavow that because when I have disavowed it, I've been screwed and unhappy. And when I have listened, even in the times where I was told things that I didn't want to hear about certain, certain somebody I was dating or some friend of mine, as painful as it was, it was to forewarn me of that which I was going to hear about and have to deal with in an emotional level, at an emotional level. You know, like, oh, no, let your, you know, my girlfriend, oh, I'm going to go out with my ex-boyfriend for lunch. We'll never forget it's 16. It's like, oh, go have fun with him. You know, and then the spirit said, you're never going to see her again. It's over. And literally, it's the next day she calls me and she goes, we're done. I said, why? Because I'm getting back together with my ex-boyfriend. And I'm like, what the heck? And I was like, and I had thought, wait, right when I told her she could, and I was like, I can't stand in the way. The spirit said, don't worry, it's over, it's done. It's, it's, you'll find out soon enough. And I was like, oh my God, I did hear that the day before. 
So yeah, you know, it's you don't get to control what you hear. Though I did ask one time, and it did help. I was getting some information. I thought. I just couldn't handle in life. And I said I wanted to be able to at least handle it. So it kind of stopped until maybe I'm ready to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you're right. It, it, yeah. It's sometimes painful, some of the, the things that you pick up through the psychic sense. And, and yet at the same time, in the end, you know, it all seems to even out. And, you know, if you get just used to it as being part of who you are, I think, Resistance for me seems to make it more difficult if you resist. Um, so, for instance, I, I definitely have resisted the whole ghost hunting thing. In fact, when I first met you and we, you know, you wanted us to come to the house, I, I wanted to have nothing to do with anything with Manson because when I was young, I wouldn't even read the book. I was like, I don't want to know anything. It's horrible. I don't care to hear it. You know, as young, I was super sensitive, really sensitive to violence. I mean, I couldn't take it, you know, and, I, and, then, and then I'm like, oh, my God, here I am being drawn into yeah. this area. I said, I don't want to be drawn in, <laughs> you know. So I, I, I kind of understand what you said earlier about not always choosing where you're going. It's just and then learning to surrender and say, well, this is what, you know, the universe wants me to do. I'll be all right. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's it's when you struggle and you try to go counter the currents in your life you end up pushing yourself taking yourself steps backwards and then you realize you know something maybe i should go with the flow instead of trying to buck the trend mm -hmm. and realize that that's where your your best interests lie in following your heart instead of as you say not making it making it right and when you don't make it right you end up as you say um suffering and struggling until such time as you realize you have to change it and you got to change the, the, the dance it feels and my mother sometimes you got to learn to waltz and sometimes you got to learn to charleston or you, you know you basically you know that, that that is my mom's era but the point was is that sometimes you have to think about what you're doing and reevaluate and if it's not working change it make an adjustment find a way to um Make happiness out of what you're dealing with, because if you realize that that's in your best interest, you'll end up having a much better shot at dealing with the consequences of things a lot easier, because you won't take it so personally. As my mother said, she goes, you take things too personally. I said, what do you mean? She goes, everything you say comes at you in a way that you think it's about you, and it goes, it's really not. If somebody else is going through a little moment of uncomfort and you cross their paths and they lash out at you, it might not have anything to do with you. You're just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Don't take it personally. They're upset about something totally different. And yeah. that's kind of the way it is. You've got to learn. You, it, it's, life is all about the lessons in life when we decide to accept them and to learn from those lessons that we end up growing to our greatest and highest potential. Yeah. That's so true. It does seem like you have um, a, a kind of special relationship with Sharon, though. And again, like, I find it's interesting that, you know, you didn't really seek it out either. And I, I agree with you. It's fine to be fans with people. I'm, I'm a fan of certain people that are dead. And I wouldn't say I'm fanatical, but I, you know, that's perfectly normal. But uh, it does seem like you have, a, and, and then I guess maybe Jay, too, because you've seen him, you know. And, and would you yeah. like to talk a little bit about that? Well, like I said, I... I think the reason why Sharon, you know, hangs around here and with me is, is a lot to do with the fact that um, back in high school, when in the late 70s, my friends used to come up here when I was late, you know, my mid-teens, and we'd all read Helter Skelter. Um, we all wanted to see the location where the murders took place. So we basically went and um, went, used to go down there to the house and my friends would be cracking beers and smoking joints. And I, the very first time and almost, and, and every time I ever went up there was probably maybe about 10 times total in the couple, in the high school years, I would walk right up to the fence, chain link fence, which was still there. And I'd bow my head down and say a prayer for them and say, look, I know we're about to smoke and party and whatnot here. Um, I just want to first and foremost, pay my respect to all of you and to those that have been here and that died here, I, I feel the most utmost empathy and sorrow for your for the situation and how you died and 
the tragedy that befell you all. And I just want you to know, I mean you no disrespect. And I want, and it was almost like being honest enough to feel it. Because to me, after reading the book, and it was only a couple of years, like, was just like less than 10 years after the murders took place. We, I mean, I just felt like, God, these poor people, it was just such senseless tragedy. And I just kept saying, you know something? I'm sorry. I wish I could have done something. I wish it could be different, you know. But I just want you to know that you're not, you are gone, but you are far from forgotten. And I want you to know that I am sorry. And it was with that sincerity and integrity that I approached that. And all of my friends couldn't give a rat's ass. They're like, come on, let's look at the gate. Let's, let's, let's go party. And I'm going, you know, guys, it, I mean, it was almost like I felt it literally the seconds we got up to walking up to the gate. It's just heaviness that people now describe. And I felt it back then. And it was just like, I felt sorrow. I felt really sad. And it wasn't like I was thinking in my head, do you remember this is part in this book? I mean, we all did that. But it went deeper than just on the superficial level of the book. It felt like it's 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 hallowed ground. This is really, it's really you know, it just. I guess that we had a different appreciation in that day, or at least some of us did. That it was really a tragedy that really was so tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, see, come here, Ray. Come here. It's like if the dogs in here because they're walking around making oh, sure. sounds and I hear them, it's not polite. Um, but it was like, I just had this sense of reverence towards them. And when we bought the lot 20 years later, when I first came up here in 1998 with my dad, it was like, oh my God, that's where the Tate house was. I'm here again. And I had tried multiple times to find this house and I mean, find the driveway and I couldn't after high school. I just could never find this location. So the fact was that um, when we finally, from 1998, November, 21 years ago, came up, I was like, oh my God, I'm here again. And that's where the lot is? I was like, no way. No, no, no way. I, I mean, to this day, I still don't believe this is where I live and this is the house that I live in and that it's the proximity to the paid house and all the stories I've experienced there over the past 17 years or 20 years since you started building the house, mm-hmm. it, it still blows my mind. And I still have the deepest sense of respect, reverence, and empathy towards those who passed away there down the street. And I think that that still rings true to them, that I haven't changed. Mm-hmm. That... It is a story that, I mean, sometimes as humans, it's easier to connect to individual tragedies than like, say, whole groups of tragedies, because it's so, it's so impossibly large. And and their stories are particularly tragic and touching, and especially the time that it happened. And it, it would, you'd have to be really very callous not to really feel... And I think sadness is is really how I felt too. That that's the one thing I would say for sure I felt. Absolutely, it um, I, it really kind of like I don't want to say it set me apart from a lot of other people, but it was almost like, geez, I just felt the thought of you. You were coming home is what I was just feeling when I came up here 21 years ago in November to see the lot, and that story's in the book, and that's an interesting, fun story, but. I remember looking there and just saying, I'm, I'm, I almost like you're home. It's like, huh? I'm home. What do you mean I'm home? I go, this is where you're going to build your home. And all my life, my been around my father, who was a builder, contractor, architect, designer. And um, I always wanted to build a house that I lived in because my sister, some years earlier, and brother-in-law built their house um, with my father's help. And I said, I've always wanted to build a house with my father because the house that I was born in, my father built that from scratch. And I said, I want to be able to do just like he did because he said, I laid the plans of this house out the way I wanted it. I didn't buy somebody else's house. I created my own design and creations because that's the way, what I wanted to live in, he said to me when he built the house. We talked about the house that he lived in. And I said, it basically sings in my head, like, I want to do the same, Dad. And after my sister did that with my father, because she sat down with him, they bought a lot, 
where she bought a lot and she and my dad designed the house and my brother-in-law. I said, the hell, so do I. I want that. I've always wanted that. So when we got the lot and it was it was a steal at $40,000, yeah. 10% of the value and the $100,000 worth of improvements on the land, it was um, it was uh, fortuitous to say the least and might have been fate. Because I said, there's no way I'm going to live in Beverly Hills. I, I grew up in, in, in Westwood in the hills, and I went to high school in Beverly Hills High for three years, but I never lived here, and I didn't want to. And it wasn't like, yes, I want to live in Beverly Hills where all this what Hell no. I'm more down to earth and more grounded than that. So to me, it's like, I don't want to live there. I, I, I went to high school there for three years with all the snobs and all that stuff. I couldn't stand it. Mm. And so then, let's see, 1980. So then, like, so eight years after I graduated high school, I mean, seven years after I graduated high school, the lot pops and it turns, comes into my foray. And we buy the lot at the foreclosed price of $40,000 and we build the house. And I'm like, I don't believe this is actually happening. This just is like, it's like, for lack of a better word, it felt like I was in a movie of my own life. And that's what's so strange. When I look back upon it, I go, wow, it's just so, such a strange, as, as Jerry Garcia, Jerry Garcia said with the Grateful Dead, what a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> I mean, I mean when, look, you read the book and you even said, you've known me for 20 some odd years. And you said there were things that you learned about me that you never know that I never revealed any to you guys. And it's like, yeah, and that goes back to the fact again, the long strange trip and my connectivity to the Sharon Tate, to Sharon, to the Manson family and the girls being in the backseat of my mother's car in the late 60s when she was picking up hitchhikers and all that stuff. And then, like I said, coming here a few years after the book came out, like nine, eight years after the murders took place. And then 20 years fast forward from that, I'm actually now building a property here. It's just strange, 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 strange. Oh no, shit. I'm sorry. 1988, 18 years, because 1981 was when I graduated. Mm-hmm. So 19, so 1989 wasn't. It was 1998. So 17 years after I graduated high school, this pops into my head, and you go, "Wow, that's from this point in the six, from 1969 to 1978 to then 1998. It's just the connectivity through the years and through my lifetime back to this. It's like, wow." That's a weird line of connection from one It, it is. And I think, and also, I think when you put it down in a book, like there's probably things you've told me I forgot to, but when you read it all together, I think it has, you know, that sense of uh, impact, you know, because it's part memoir, part investigation. And um, I did want to uh, briefly talk about the whole magnetic anomaly feature of your house because that's a whole other dimension, literally, <laughs> that's unique. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, because I know, you know, Barry brought it up and and it it is really interesting. So share with us a little bit about that. Well, Barry, who you're referring to is Dr. Barry Tapp. And Dr. Tapp came here to my house in 2004. And Barry was brought here by my publicist, who's a friend of mine, who said, I know this guy that's very much into the paranormal. He, um does ghost investigations and has and been doing it for a number of like 30 years. I said, what do you mean? Well, he worked on the original Entity case. The movie was based on And I said, okay. And then he dropped, he named dropped, he said he worked with Selma Moss at UCLA. And that clicked into my childhood because I remember seeing and hearing about Selma Moss, the, the parapsychology professor at UCLA, who had explained the Carillion photography. And what she was doing is she was taking a leaf and she would cut off a section of the leaf and they would put it down on an x-ray machine. And what they would expose on the x-ray machine was the full, complete leaf, including the part that was removed that she had cut off. And she was talking about how that sometimes this is a, this is a form of paranormal, paranormal psycho- psychology in the sense that even though the actual physical remnant of the leaf has been removed, the, the whole aura or the energy will still retain the actual original image that was there before it was cut. And I was like, oh, my God, 
Thelma Moss, she's credible. She's not just, you know, some personality. And I was like, I said, you got to get him to be here to the house. And mind you, that was in 2005. So three, but yeah, so a year after the initial first investigation of Rob Lodowski. And by the way, I found out that Rob's original first investigation here at the house predates the very, very, very first episode of Ghost Hunters ever airing. Which oh. aired three months later. So when people say, you know, you're, you're about the panel, it's like, look, we were investigating this house long before there were TV shows dealing with the paranormal, bringing this to the surface of the, you know, of the psyche, of the zeitgeist, of the, you know, people, of, of, of the uh, society now. So it's kind of like, what, a year later, this is after the first year of Ghost Hunches was on, and I didn't do any investigations after. I brought Barry here, and Barry was like, this house is giving me headaches. I'm getting dizzy and immediate. And Barry later on said to me that um, the house has got some strange, strange energies that he couldn't explain. And that according to his scientific meters, which included a geomagnetometer, which again, this is before we have Frank's boxes even mm-hmm. in the field of trying to communicate with ghosts and stuff. So this is a real piece of scientific equipment that is used by geologists to test the Earth's magnetic fields. And it's now, mind you, it is DC EMF levels that it's registering, and it can only register DC EMF levels, not AC, which is alternating current, which is all the wires through the house. DC current is made up of static electricity, lightning, mm. um, battery energy, and it's called direct current because it's just a direct pulse straight across without any any oscillation changes in the uh, frequencies of the uh, electro electricity flow. So he says to me, he brings out this equipment when he comes back the second time, and he's telling me, he goes, it's nuts. I said, well, he goes, my geomagnetometer at the front door is going up to 2,000 milligauss. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, 2,000 milligauss positive. And I'm like, what is, what is you, you're speaking Greek to me, and I don't speak Greek. I speak English. And he says to me, um, well, let me give you an idea. Normal is between three and 500 milligauss positive anywhere on the earth for the most part. He says, that's normal. He says to me that in your house at the front door, it's 2,000 milligauss positive and the meter has a range of 2,000 milligauss positive to 2,000 milligauss negative, which means very good. The meter can, can only register to these increments. It could be that we're going well above 2,000 milligauss but I can't register it on the meter. It won't, it can't, it can't understand what's going on, but my meter is basically pinned. Wow. So he says, he said, let's check the rest of the house. He goes to the rest of the house. He hits the bottom of the staircase and the landing on the third level. He goes, oh my God. I said, oh my God, what? He goes, um, the, thing, the meter. I said, what? He goes, it's reverse polarity. I said, what do you mean a reverse polarity? He goes, it's now reading 2,000 milligauss negative. And I'm like, Barry, what does that mean? He goes, um, well, let me think about this. Let me go upstairs. And he said, look, your house is like, like a gigantic bipole. I said, huh? He goes, all right, it's like a gigantic generator, a DC generator. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you understand positive and negative. I said, oh, yeah. I said, you mean energy? He goes, well, like the pole, like the North Pole has a negative energy field. And the po- and the, the south pole is a positive energy field. That's what they talk about the Earth's magnetic field. And he says, you've seen those diagrams where they show the Earth and they show these lines going around, the concentric lines going, and they're going from one pole to the other. He said, yeah, he goes, that's what I'm talking about. I'm going, huh? And he says, look, he goes, let me give you a bit of information. I worked on the original entity case, which took place down in Culver City, California, not too far from here. I said, back in the early 70s, he says, he goes, the entity, I said, I said, wait, you mean the movie? He goes, yeah, the movie with Barbara Hershey, that movie, he said, was a tremendous Twitter force in the paranormal field because they told the story. They didn't embellish much because they didn't want to. They just pretty much told the story as it really took place, unlike what they do today with Conjuring and, you know, right. the Annabelle stories, etc. He goes, this movie, he said, was one of the few that really... His producers and director wanted to keep 
keep straight to the story because it was such a crazy story. He said if they crossed the lines and made it too over the top, it would destroy the credibility. And to why bother when we have so much evidence here that we've documented that's far, far, far removed from what you could possibly conceive in your mind and make into a into a not into a fictional story. He said, Well, we were investigating this place and the spirit would manifest. Our instruments would spike when the spirit would, would, would appear and then would dissipate and return to normal. I said, yeah, he goes, this geomagnetometer is what I'm talking about. It would spike the 2000, and then after the apparition would vacate the, front, the area, it would return to normal. He said to me, he goes, I have a theory about your house. And after he was here for a year, visiting a number of the 20 some odd times, he said to me, he goes, all right, um, I did, it was after like the first couple of visits, he said, he goes, it's impossible. Because every time I'm here, I'm always hitting these high marks. Popping out at 2,000 positive milligauss, 2,000 negative milligauss. I said, uh-huh. He goes, I think that your house is insane. I said, what? He goes, no, no. It's, it's like, he says, he called it the Mount Everest of haunted houses and the Disneyland for the dead. And I said, why? He goes, because I've never been to a place that's always got this much energy 24-7 doesn't matter if I'm here in the day, in the night, in the early morning, it's always hot and always spiking. And he says, my theory is that the spirits are coming here because it's like a beacon in the darkness and they see this as a place where they can, you know, it's, it's light. So they come in here and they can recharge. And I said, huh? And he says, they come here because this has got such a thick energy environment that allows them to regain and to, to basically take a vacay. I said, you're kidding. He goes, oh God, he goes, forget what's going on, what, what could potentially be going on with the spirits down the street. He goes, oh, those are five people that died that are in close proximity. He goes, do you know how many, how many thousands of thousands upon thousands of spirits, hundreds of thousands of spirits exist? And your place, you say, could be just one of those places that where they gravitate towards and they hang out. And I'm like, going, <laughs> I laughed. I said, you got to be kidding. He goes, uh-uh, I can't explain it. He goes, your house is crazy. And he goes, I personally am so affected by it, so sensitive to it, that it it really weighs heavy on my body. And I said, are you okay? Goes, yeah, it's tough. I have to go home and basically take a few days off to kind of like decompress from being at your house before I come back because it's so taxing on my head and in my stomach, and he says also, the first time he was here after he left, he calls me like six days later and said, um, I'm having some weird violent sexual nightmares. And oh yeah, like, that was scary, his dreams. I said, I said, Daddy, what are you, what is it? I, said I, I said, I understand nightmares, I understand violence, but I said, the compass, the, 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 what you're describing is weird sexual violent nightmares. I said, I don't get it. Said, what are they, you're, you're having violent sex? And he goes, no. And he went deadpan silent. He goes, no. What I mean is that um, I uh, I go to sleep and I, I, I have fall into this deep sleep and I feel like I wake up in the dream and I'm on my bed somewhere and there are three naked girls all on top of me massaging and caressing me. I said, oh, that's, that's nice. And he goes, yeah, but he goes, all of a sudden I start feeling this pain in my Stomach. I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, really deep pain in my stomach. I said, what are you doing? He said, I start looking down at my stomach and I see these three girls are disemboweling me and ripping my guts out. And I'm going, what? He goes, oh, yeah. They start dripping candle wax on me, which is really so sexy and hot. Excuse me. He goes, and then all of a sudden there's this deep pain. Oh, we're oh getting to the God. end of the show, and we didn't even get to the Lindsay Lowen story, which we will get to oh next God. time. That's have me funny. Back that one. That's, we, a you, you, that's a doozy. We got a couple other ones, so Ooh. we'll have you back for some of the other stories. There's so much, but please, folks, go buy the book, and then you'll be ready for the next show. And you can get the book at ghostsofcielodrive.com, right? Yes, ghostsofcielodrive.com. I will sign a copy for your, for your listeners and inscribe it. And, of course, my new tagline is, Keep it spooky. 
<laughs> I like that. Yes. Keep it spooky. So thank Keep you so much. Spooky. That was that was a really interesting interview. And we're going to have you back for the rest of it. And I assume you might be doing more another book at some point. Well, I have to. This book ends in 2000 and the beginning of 2014. And I figured I wasn't going to arrive a war and peace novella, a, a novel <laughs> of 500 pages. So I kept it to 230 pages, which is just enough for the pictures to get you interested. But There'll be a, a volume two, which will go 2014 to 2020, and all the more crazy stories that have occurred since then. Yes, well, I'm looking forward to that myself. And thanks again, David. It was great having you as always. Thank you guys for having me on again. It's a pleasure being on, and much success to you and the Sixth Sense Society. Thank you so much, and thank you, audience, for listening. And we will see you next time as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure together. Have a great uh, week and holiday season.